0: Microsoft is a pure example of absolute tyranny. The decisions are made at the top. They're handed down to the next level. At the very bottom, you have the right to wrench yourself to them. As soon as you start deregulating, it moves towards monopolization. That's the result of handing things over to the market.
1: That's the result of politicians being for sale. But to sit here and say everything is the private's fault and everything good that ever happened was because of the public and the government, that's extremely naive to say
0: that. Classical liberals would have despised subordinating yourself to a master and most of your waking life that's the form of state capitalism that we have and I think we should move towards a system in which the classical liberal ideals are realized
1: <laughs> that's what your interpretation is
0: so you, you continue to take the extremely naive I point think of view. Your take, you I use think you're your thinking, word of talking about the individual you said they use
1: what the public created
0: it impossible for you to break out of this looking naively and refusing to look at the institutions in which they function so everybody in the world has
1: heard of mit right i mean think about when somebody goes to mit say, oh my gosh he graduated from mit but think about it if somebody talked at mit for 60 years that's what my guest did today mr noam chomsky who also has written over 150 books. He's a famed American linguist. Some call him the father of of modern linguists. He's a philosopher, cognitive scientist, historian, social critic, uh, political activist. And with that being said, Professor Noam, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment.
0: Pleasure to be with you.
1: So I got a lot of different notes and I'm trying to see what angle to take with you, but I'll get right into it. If you don't mind taking a moment And for the few viewers that maybe don't know you, there's a lot of interesting ways people describe you. You're described as the, uh, 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 you know, aligning with anarcho-syndicalism and libertarian socialism. Can you just give us an idea about what some of your beliefs philosophically, politically, and economically are?
0: There was uh, classical liberalism came to grief because it was undermined by the rise of capitalism, but the basic uh, ideas of classical liberalism, namely that people should be uh, not subjected to uh, the domination of masters, should be free to determine their own fate, should be worked together in association to make a better world. All of this remained, but outside the framework of mainstream ideology and uh, libertarian socialism is the standard term in Europe for what is here sometimes called anarchism uh, which tried to realize the ideas of the Enlightenment and classical liberalism, Uh, basically the idea that uh, authority and domination are not self-justifying. They have to justify themselves. And if they can't, which is usually the case, they should be dismantled in terms of more free and participatory societies. So the great 19th century uh, theorist of classical liberalism, uh, John Stuart Mill, held that In uh, industry and the economy generally, uh, the natural form to which a civilized society should uh, develop is uh, self-management by associations of workers in production by people in community and so on without any arbitrary hegemonic authority.
1: Got it. So, you know, uh, 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 almost all of us who create our own set of beliefs, whether it's spiritual, political, philosophical, economical? There's somebody that influenced us. Whether it's, hey, I read von Mises. Oh my gosh, great stuff! I'm a capitalist. I read Ayn Rand. I totally get why I'm more like a libertarian. Or I read Karl Marx. The guy's got some good arguments. When you think about what's being done, you know, I read. Who were
0: some of the folks that influenced you the most? Actually, the people who influenced me the most are. People whose names will never be known, Uh, people on the front lines of the struggles for justice and for freedom. Uh, Take, say, the American Civil Rights Movement. Uh, If you ask about the Civil Rights Movement, the name that comes to mind is Martin Luther King, who was a great figure. Highly respect him, but he would have been the first to tell you that he was riding on a groundswell that was prepared by others, by young snake workers, whose names you don't know, who were riding freedom buses in Alabama to try to encourage uh, black farmers to dare to go to vote in the face of lynch mobs and uh, brutal sheriffs and so on. Uh, Many of them suffered some were killed. Uh, those are the kind of people who I think we should respect and honor. We rarely even know their names. And there are people like that all over the world. Much of what they do is very inspiring. I can't find any higher inspiration than that.
1: What, what books maybe, and that was very helpful to share that because it makes me think, but what books, what books did you read as a young man coming up? Because it seems like A lot of your philosophy was established very early on. And I know, you you know, in one of your books, you talk about how you grew up as a center leftist, more on like the FDR political type of a a, a range where you were with your family. But what books were they when you read and you said, this just makes a lot of sense? Why aren't people understanding this? Were there any books that impacted you?
0: So many that I can't list them, but uh, ranging across the spectrum. So ranging from uh, when I was a young teenager, uh, from uh, Russell's, uh, Bertrand Russell's history of philosophy to pamphlets uh, uh, by uh, uneducated uh, workers, without people with peasants, without formal education in, uh, in Spain during the anarchist revolution, who recorded what they were doing To collectivize their own villages and take control of their lives. Uh, Things that I was picking up in uh, anarchist bookstores in Fourth Avenue, uh, New York, where I used to go as a young teenager. So a whole range of things.
1: Got it. Who were you in high school? If you and I were 16 years old in high school together, I'm sitting next to you, I go to school with you for two years, who would have people said who Noam was at 16, 17
0: years old? In high school. In
1: high school, who were you in high school?
0: In high school, I was sort of a loner, had a couple of friends. Mm -hmm. Some of them remained friends till the end of their lives just a couple of years ago, but not many. Mostly I kept to myself and I was involved in lots of intensive political activities. Of a in a different area, most of my own engagements, direct engagements at the time, had to do with uh, uh, with what was then the Zionist movement. Now it would be called anti-Zionist. Involved. This is before the state of Israel was formed. It's the, we're talking about the early 40s, and I was involved with groups that were working towards uh, developing a a, a binational Arab Jewish cooperative community based on working class cooperation between Palestinian and Jewish workers. Uh, that ideal, bits and pieces of it were realized, but most of it changed radically in 1948. But that was the main activities I was in then, and in many ways, still am. That's lasted through my life. And among, if you ask about influences, a lot of the people who influenced me were people writing in, at that time in Hebrew, uh, people like uh, great essayist Ahad uh, Am, who was committed to a form of what he called cultural Zionism, uh, a Zionist uh, recreation of a cultural center in uh, Palestine, which would reinvigorate Jewish culture for the entire diaspora, and who wrote eloquently, in fact, that the incoming settlers will have to pay attention to the fact, can't ignore the fact that this country is settled, settled by Palestinians, we're going to live with them, we're going to deal with them on an equal basis, we have to be integrated with them into the world that we're creating. Uh, that, that's the turn of the century, 1900.
1: So you've been a true believer for a very, very long time, a true believer very long time in your philosophy. Can you, can you remember when it was, when your philosophies were core to the point where nobody could change your mind on certain set of philosophies that you had?
0: I've never reached that point. But we should always be open-minded, willing to listen to new ideas and arguments. Right. My my own—I wouldn't even call it a philosophy. My own general points of view about the nature of life were formed as early as I can remember. Uh, Early childhood. I grew up in the Depression, so there was really deep poverty. Uh, My own family, elsewhere, and. Those scenes uh, stay with me. Uh, miserable people coming to the door, trying to sell rags, uh, something like that. Uh, these are the, these are indelible memories, and i've I've now seen it all over the world. That's kind of place I gravitate to, whether it's in Southern Colombia or eastern Turkey or refugee camps in Lebanon or many other places where we've gone or, you know, the, it, or right here in the United States. You don't have to go very far to see it.
1: Most of the world has only seen that in movies. You know, you you watch the movies and you the only way you can get a depiction of what happened in the Great Depression is, let me go watch a movie and then maybe I'll get an idea of it. I mean, I was born and raised in Iran and I lived there for 10 years and the war happened between Iran and Iraq. I remember it clearly. And then going to Germany, living at a refugee camp for a couple of years and seeing what that was like, a a small little camp we had, and then finally coming to the States. So living in Iran, I grew up watching folks going across the street, protesting, flagellating their backs with a streak of blood on the ground, screaming out death upon America. I witnessed that as a kid for 10 years, obviously not from the day I was born, say from four years old, five years old, earliest memories you would see that. And as a kid, that kind of leaves a mark, kind of like what you saw on the Great Depression side. But there was also another community that loved America and wanted to come to America for the freedoms it offered. Everybody, I think, has a different definition of what America means to them. What does America mean to you? It means
0: many different things, ranging from some of the worst crimes in human history, like uh, the most vicious system of slavery that was ever created, which still its legacy is very much with it, including the virtual extermination of the indigenous population uh, at one extreme, at the other extreme, breaking new barriers in uh, popular democracy, developing the concept of we the people, which was a revolutionary concept in the 18th century, uh, moving on to uh, protecting freedom of speech to a degree that's unknown elsewhere. So a mixture of extreme horrors and exciting achievements.
1: Which which achievements to you would you say are some of the best achievements America's had as a nation.
0: The pioneering from the 18th century of mass public democracy, it's been a struggle all the way. The founding fathers were strongly opposed to it. The uh, constitution is a aristocratic doctrine which seeks to marginalize the general public. But then come constant struggles Constant all through the years to try to provide some real meaning to the concept we the people. When I talked about snake workers in Alabama, that's one kind of contribution. When you talk about uh, uh, young people from the Sunrise Movement uh, occupying congressional offices today to try to get Congress to move towards taking steps that will save the human species from self-destruction. That's another kind of step. So you see these things all the way through history. If you like, it's it's a kind of sharp class war being fought constantly. And you have both sides. It's not contradictions, they're opposing forces. And that's the course of history. So you can see horrors Iran is a case in point, you can take a look at uh, the memoirs of General Robert Heuser, who was dispatched by President Carter to carry out a military coup in uh, Iran in 1979. Uh, You can see the uh, blurb by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's uh, national security advisor, who says "Yes." then this vindicates him. If uh, a military coup had been carried out, maybe killing who knows how many people, uh, uh, we could have maintained the rule of the Shah, the US imposed in 1953, overthrowing Iran's parliamentary democracy. So you can see that, you can see other things.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was, so you, you were not supportive of what Carter did to not help the Shah at a time where they kept saying, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. And then obviously there was a fall of the Shah. You supported the Shah, meaning you would have liked it to stay the way it was?
0: That's a different question. Once he was ousted, the question is, how should he be treated? I felt, despite his enormous crimes, and they were terrible, uh, he should be treated humanely. But that's a separate question from the Carter Brzezinski plan to carry out a military coup. Actually, this was described openly by uh, Israel's uh, de facto ambassador uh, to Iran, uh, who uh, publicly announced in in 1979 that Israel had very close relations with the Shah, that uh, what's needed in Iran is a bloody military coup which may kill ten thousand people uh, but that will suppress the uprising and restore the tyrannical rule of the shah that's what they had in mind well i'm opposed to that but i'm in favor of treating the tyrant humanely once he was ousted
1: interesting i mean if you study it a little bit deeper i'm from there so i put a little bit more time into that specific topic was also the 25 year contract that oil between France, Germany, UK, and I'm sure you were this with US, where they were not happy about the fact that the Shah was about to raise the prices And 1979, was a specific year when the prices was gonna go up. So they had a private meeting in uh, South or Central America to figure out a way to make the, this strategy was four nations wanting to make sure he didn't stay in power the way he did. So it was extremely strategic, but it's interesting to see the fact that you still want the individual to be treated in a humane way you know if i if i read some of your books like if i read who rules the world the book that you wrote uh who rules the world uh if i watch your documentary if i watch some of our interviews if i go watch you and william buckley have a debate if i go watch uh, any of the stuff that you've done a lot of work your catalog of work is very wide and very deep I don't get the most positive feeling about America. I almost if I had someone who was not uh, an individual who had spent a lot of time wanting to study uh, the uh, history of America, say I have fifty students here and I have fifty students here, neither one of them have ever studied the history of America. If I gave them your material to read and study for a year, I'm willing to bet most of them after you after you would probably hate America. You know, a lot of the things that I read, it doesn't come across as there is that, that love of uh, what a great country America is. For you, and you make a lot of good arguments in your books, I'm watching to see what your points are on this. Okay, this makes sense. I see where he's going with this. Do you still, maybe it's not even still, do you think America has or is ever been the greatest country in the world?
0: There's no such concept as the greatest country in the world, just as there's no greatest human being in the world. Countries have many complex characteristics, some of them very outstanding, wonderful, others hideous. So take uh, some other country, let's take Germany, Uh, some of the greatest thinkers, scientists, uh, uh, artists in the world, uh, the depths of human history as well. What's more, it flips quickly from one to the other. You just can't make comments like that. I mean, his Germany, in the 1920s, Germany was regarded as the peak of European civilization, and the sciences, philosophy, the arts, was regarded as a model of democracy. In the 1930s, 10 years later, was regarded as the depths of human history. 10 years later, beginning of a return to what it once was. So what's Germany? What's England? England has an absolutely hideous record of uh, atrocities and destruction for centuries. Iran, in fact, is a case in point. I know a lot about it, but uh, Iran could have moved in the early 20th century towards democracy and freedom. The British crushed it uh, when Iran tried to Take control of its own energy resources in the early 50s. uh, Britain tried to crush it by force. When they were unable to, they asked the big guy across the Atlantic to come in and smash it for them. Okay, that's one side of Britain, not the worst by any means. On the other side, it has, again, my favorite philosophers in history, right in front of me, I have a book uh, about the friendship between Adam Smith and David Hume in the 18th century, two outstanding figures, two of my famous figures in history. So that's another side of England. So what's your attitude towards England? You can't answer, just too many things. Same with every other place you can think of. So I, I don't see any, except for people at patriotic rallies, I don't think you should ask questions like least uh, I wouldn't. Uh, what's the greatest country.
1: So would you would you be able to say, you know, you, 60 years you've given to MIT, most of your life you've lived in America, you've been all over the world, would you be able to say, I love my country, America?
0: I don't love countries. Love is a relationship between pe- people. When you love countries, there's something wrong. Should you have loved uh, Germany when it was carrying out the Holocaust? Uh, should you have loved Germany when it was at the peak of human civilization. Uh, You care for people and the societies in which they live. I care for many societies, including this one, but you don't love countries. At least, I don't think you should.
1: I think there's an emotional connection sometimes with certain set of values that one nation offers to you where the other one where you grew up and didn't it's almost like a i'm not i'm mean, i wasn't born here i'm not a us citizen i can never run to be the president here or maybe i can do governor or something like that but this is not really where i was born but this country welcomed me with open arms and gave me an incredible life and uh to compare it to where i was raised at i mean you know the worst day in america is still 10 times better than the best day in iran so that's what i mean where maybe for you, you had some kind of a love for the country that, you know, gave you the opportunity to become...
0: The country, uh, sorry, the country didn't give you the opportunity. Certain people within the country gave you the opportunity while preventing others, victims of their own crimes from having that opportunity. They gave you the opportunity because you were a refugee from a country that was an official enemy. Okay that's what they did. Now take me. My parents fled from Eastern Europe uh, horrible conditions and did manage to get to the United States. Uh, and they managed to create a good life for themselves, an even better one for me, okay? On the other hand, a couple of years after they fled from Europe, they happened to make it just before the First World War. A Few years later, in 1924, the United States passed a law, immigration law of 1924, which was aimed particularly at Jews and Italians. I'm Jewish. Uh, The idea was to keep Jews and Italians away from the country because they were not up to, we don't want that kind of rabble around. Well, that helped put most of my extended family into uh, gas chambers, okay? They couldn't come here because they were barred in the 1930s. Uh, they con- refuge, uh, Jewish refugees continued to be barred, uh, virtually a few were let in, uh, in the late 40s when they were still in concentration camps, uh, but then desperately trying to get out. The United States wouldn't have them. Uh, Central Americans who are victims of massive U.S. atrocities were being kept out right at this moment. They're being driven away from the border when they flee from, refuge, from horrors that we created from the 80s. Okay, so it's a very mixed story. Sure, I'm glad to have been able to come to the richest country in the world with advantages that don't exist anywhere else thanks to the extermination and expulsion of the native population. So yes, for me, that's very good. Does that mean I love the country? No, I admire some things within it. I think we should despise other things within it. And the same is true of every other country.
1: Would, would you call yourself a pessimist or a optimist?
0: Well, I, when asked that, I always appeal to the slogan that uh, Antonio Gramsci made famous. Uh, We should have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. There's a lot of things that are wrong, that's what we should concentrate on, trying to make them better, and we should be optimistic about the power to do so, no matter what the obstacles.
1: Yeah, it, it almost reminds me of, uh, the, the, you you studied obviously a lot of philosophy, I'm assuming you also studied probably Stoicism with Seneca and, you know, Marcus Aurelius and and the whole how Stoicism got started with prior to it used to be called cynicism and a couple of guys are like, listen, I'm, I am i don't want to be part of this cynicism community. It was a philosophy and, and you know, Seneca kind of stepped away and says, I'm just going to go do something else and then boom, Stoicism got started uh, into what it is today, but it was... It was more of the mindset of, I can do something about my life to improve my life. Do you believe the individual has the ability and the control and the responsibility and the ultimate level of accountability to help improve their situation and their lives?
0: Not just your own life, but to improve the world for all of us. And those are, right now, the most urgent questions that have ever faced uh, the human species. After all, we might not like to think about it, but we have about a, a decade or two to answer the question as to whether organized human life will persist on Earth. Nothing less than that. Very stark question.
1: How certain are you of that? To say a decade or two, that's a pretty extreme statement to say we only have a decade or two.
0: Why do I say that? Yes. Yeah. It's a fact. If we don't, if we don't deal with the increase of heating the environment, we will reach tipping points which are irreversible, doesn't mean everybody's going to die tomorrow, but we'll be off on a course, which will be unstoppable, and will lead to essentially the end of organized human life on earth along with millions of other species, which we're destroying at the same time. I can't be certain about this, but there's a very high probability of it, in fact, virtual unanimity among scientists, that this is what's going to happen, unless we take control within the next few decades. So to
1: say it's a fact, that's a a pretty strong uh, statement, to say it's a fact. Fact means like you know, uh, uh, 100%, we're going to be there and-
0: Nothing is 100%. Okay. Quantum theory is not 100%. Theory of relativity is not 100%. In the empirical world, you never have certainty. You only I'm just saying,
1: you said certainty. fact. I'm just repeating, you said fact. So I think what you're yes. saying, there's a possibility, but not necessarily factual.
0: Yes, but that's- okay. There's a background understanding since the 17th century that in the world of empirical fact, you never reach certainty. So when we talk about facts as we do freely, we always mean it with that qualification in the background. We're not going to stop using the word fact. Like uh, it's a fact that uh, if I take this coffee cup and I let go of it, it's a fact that it'll fall to the ground. Though there in fact, is a very slight possibility that it'll rise to the sky. Okay, happens to be the case. Uh, Things, there's a spectrum of possibilities of which the overwhelmingly high probability, so high that there's no need in the practical world to consider anything else, is it'll fall to the ground. But there does happen to be a very minuscule possibility that it might go to the sky. But when we talk about facts, we have that understanding in the background.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just never seen anything fall up and I've lived 42 years. I've had a hard time seeing I mean, if things would have gone up and I would have jumped a little higher, I would have been in the NBA today. So I'm hoping that was kind of favoring me, but I couldn't jump more than 15 inches. So I could never go into the NBA. So factually some of this stuff, maybe I got some work to do on.
0: Actually there is not that you would do it, but it's just one of the things that could happen in the universe. So it could happen
1: in the universe, but that's a could, that's not a fact though. That's a, but to say factually in the next 10 or 20 years, that makes somebody sit there and say, two times two is four, that's a fact. Two times two is not gonna be five tomorrow. There's a possibility it'll be five tomorrow. That, that puts a lot of fear in some folks who haven't, who haven't read as much so, as you have to say, to say the world, you know, we're going in the direction with climate change in 10 or 20 years, that's a scary
0: thought. No, sorry, that's a misunderstanding. Sure. Every empirical fact that you can think of has a possibility of being wrong. Whatever it is, that's been understood for centuries. And in
1: that's modern, different. That's, that could be your opinion, my opinion, research, who
0: wrote it's it. It's not a matter of opinion. By now, modern physics even explains it in some detail. So it doesn't mean we should stop talking about facts. Of course we should. But we should talk about facts with a recognition, always, barely possible, sometimes almost inconceivably small probability that they're wrong so we continue to talk about facts so when i say it's a fact that this is going to happen that means there's an overwhelmingly high probability and we know the it's reasons. i think there's a big we know difference. the factors and so on yeah. if you want every statement that's ever made to be added to disqualification okay i don't think that's a wise policy we should no. continue to talk about facts
1: sure no, I, I, just think, you know, one of the reasons why we've gotten to where we are in America, this is my opinion, this is not a fact, this is my opinion. I'm very comfortable being wrong. I think one of the reasons why we've gone to where we are today in America, as divisive as we are, is because both sides think everything they believe in is 100% factual, you know, and this is coming from a skeptical Christian. This is coming from a guy that grew up an atheist for 25 years and I'm sitting there debating all these different issues in the Bible, and I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't matter, and I'm a math guy. So I understand what you're saying, I appreciate that, but let's go to a different topic here. So let's talk about capitalism. Let's talk about capitalism. We have different economical systems in the world. You know, no matter how much I study what you say, you'll take shots at Obama, then you'll take shots at Bush, then you'll take shots at Nixon, then you'll take shots at Carter, then you'll take shots at Trump. So it's not like you are blindly no matter what only defending anybody that is on one side you're not that that's not you you're not a uh a such and such person such a perfect leader he can never make a mistake you don't come from that that gives you a lot of credibility as a reader to say i'm actually interested to see what he's thinking about it here but if we look at economical systems we got capitalism we got socialism we got communism and then you know a couple other things marxism would be pretty much the same as socialism communism a, a part of it what what do you think about, like when you, when you think about capitalism, out of all the systems that we've had, and the results that capitalism has created, what are your thoughts on capitalism?
0: Well, first of all, I have a different conception of the various options in the world. You see many different kinds. I see one. Every society that's functioning has some variety of state capitalism. Uh, some elements of capitalism constrained by state power. That's true of the United States, it's true of Britain, it was true of Russia under the so-called Communists, That's true of China. Uh, we can look at the different variants of state capitalism that exist. I think they all have some advantages, many defects. Now as far as this, my discussing Biden, Obama, Bush, and so on. Uh, There are two kinds of, we have a certain, we have a finite amount of time and energy. We can decide how to use it. One way to use it is to march in parades, praising the magnificence of our leaders and uh, countries along with a great mass of other people. Pretty useless activity in my opinion. The other, The other possibility is to see what's wrong with existing societies and work to try to change them. My feeling is that's where attention and energy should be devoted. So every one of those figures that you mentioned did a lot of things that I think were very wrong, very harmful to others and ourselves. And I think uh, not just them, but the people around them, the social forces that within which they were functioning and so on. So I think the sensible thing to do is look at those and try to improve and change them. If that gives an impression of being negative, yes, it's true. I think we should be negative about things that ought to be changed. If you want to applaud, join the multitudes and the parades and praise what's nice, fine, that's okay. It's not a very worthwhile. You want to do it on July 4th, okay, but not devoting your life to
1: it so so we should emphasize on the wrong work that you do you're saying so as an as a reader you've written 150 books so rather than looking at ideas you have in your book that make sense i as the reader should look at the things that's wrong about you not the things you write that's right about you so that's kind of what you're suggesting
0: if you're if you have some special interest in me say you're my mother uh then you should be interested in the things that I do that I shouldn't be doing, okay?
1: If you care about me. But But if not, I gotta constantly be looking.
0: So if you care about the US, if you care about US society, if you don't care about US society, just go march in a parade. If you do care about US society, you'll take a look at what you think ought to be changed and improved.
1: So so what you're saying is if I'm constantly looking at things that are wrong instead of things that are right I should you, that that to me means less celebration more being critical so I should spend more time protesting than attending parades
0: not just protesting trying to change if you care about the society at all you'll be concerned with trying to change the things that are wrong that hamper its development that hurt the people in it, and that are harming other people in the world. You'll be committed to changing those if you care about the society. If you don't care about the society at all, you can march in parades.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the, the I mean, I get that. Okay, fine, let's, let's continue with that. So capitalism, what, do you, what, what is, in your opinion, what is wrong with capitalism? Where do you see the flaws and challenges in capitalism, and what will be a better alternative than capitalism?
0: Well, first of all, since there is no capitalism, almost everything we have is an alternative to it. Everything in fact. Uh, If there were capitalism, it would probably self-destruct within no time. That's why the business world, pretty much in charge, has always invariably called upon state power to protect them from the ravages of the market and to subsidize them and to carry them through to the next stage to develop the next stage of the economy and so on uh, why let's be quite concrete we're now using computers the internet satellites uh, microelectronics so on where'd all that come from mostly from public investment uh you got a mostly from
1: public investment you mean the gut? so so most of the innovation we've had in America came from the government, not from the people. Yeah. That's oh, what you're saying.
0: Of course. I mean, I, you, I was at MIT in the 50s and the 60s when most of this was being developed. It was being developed on public funds. Uh, so
1: so, so that's a, that's, that's, that could be an opinion that could not be necessarily a fact. But that's another thing that could be an opinion because you and I are on a computer right now invented by this guy named Steve Wozniak.
0: Well, let's take a look at at computers. Uh, They were developed for the risky, creative hard work was done for decades, either in research, universities.
1: uh, Yeah, but they almost almost used the entire city's electricity. They had to have massive towers to have a computer because in order to allow the entrepreneur... Lots of
0: electricity, which is coming from public funding overwhelmingly. So yes, if you look back at it at all, most of it just the creative, hard, general work is just done through public engagement. Now you take a look at computers again. In 1977, after about 30 years of development of computers, mostly in the public sector, uh, Steve Jobs was be able, able to make a personal computer that you could sell on the market Apple computer, the one I'm using, uh, and then the marketing, the development and so on was mostly transferred to the private sector. Now, it's more complex than this. So IBM, for example, after learning how to switch from punch cards to uh, uh, modern computers, uh, they learned that mostly in labs like the one I was working at at MIT, but they did advance to that point. Then they were develop, able to develop their own computer in the early 60s, stretch computer, fastest run around. And nobody could buy it, it was way too expensive. So it went to the public sector. It was bought by Los Alamos, uh, and then it was able to develop further. And so it continued, same with the internet, which was being developed right where it was in fact in the late 50s, early 60s public funding. After about 30 years, 1995 or so, it was essentially handed over to private power, uh, private, largely privatized. That's where a lot of the economy develops. It goes way back to the early 19th century. 19th century, uh, the main development in the country was railroads. That was the huge economic development. They were much too complicated and extensive for private capital to deal with them. So it was handed over to the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, The uh, mass production, what's called the American way of manufacturing, which astonished the world, late 19th century. Uh, Quality control, uh, uh, replaceable parts, uh, Taylorism in industry, all of this which made things much more efficient was mostly developed in government armors and handed out, picked up, and used by private capital. Now, I'm drawing the lines too sharply. You look at the whole thing, complicated story, there's all kinds of interaction, but this is a large part of economic history all the way through. So so that's Mike, why, so that's why we always have state capitalism yeah. along with protection of the masters from market ravages. They don't want to face them. Uh, The reason we have huge financial institutions is because the government insures them and allows I don't
1: disagree with that. That's the part with crony capitalism. I'm not with that. When the the big banks got bailed out and they got the checks uh, in a way by Barack Obama or Bush or folks back in the day when Reagan bailed out I'm not the one that's sitting here saying let's bail okay. some of these companies out because okay. in my opinion uh, professor I don't think monopoly exists without the help of the government okay. I don't the think a monopoly exists quite the opposite
0: as soon as you start deregulating it moves towards monopolization with we've seen it we've seen it that's I the agree. result that's the result of handing things over to the market
1: that's the result the of fish politicians fish. being for sale because their campaigns, they need money to raise campaigns so I can go buy them because they're for sale and they help me create a monopoly because I got a couple people in my pocket. That's, that's been going on for a while. There's a reason why a lot of these bigger companies start off in different cities as headquarters. As they get bigger, they put an office right in DC because I got to go control some of the regulation and laws to not allow the other smaller guy to compete with me long-term.
0: You're looking at footnotes. The main thing is that when you begin to deregulate and hand things over to the market, there's a tendency, strong tendency to move towards monopolization. As the bigger fish eat, the littler fish have more power they can underprice. We're not off off
1: page here because I've been on calls before where the FTC, we were doing business with this one company All of a sudden, I get a call from FTC. They want to have a call with us. Great. So we want your entire team to be on the call. Okay. What's this call about?
0: To go back to capitalism, that's why the, the owners and managers of the world, those who Adam Smith called the masters of the universe, the owners of concentrated capital, that's why they have always called on the state to rescue them from disaster. So going back to the original point, all over the world, we have one or another variety of state capitalism.
1: But why do, why do politicians fall for that, though?
0: What? Why
1: do politicians fall for that? Politicians can say, we're not bailing you out. Why do they bail them out? The politician doesn't have to say, yes, we'll bail you out. No, we're going to let the market decide how you do. Why would they bail them out? Sorry, why would they want? So, so you're saying these, these masters of the universe that uh, Adam Smith talks about, they almost always go to the public to bail them out, but the public has the right to say, "No, we're not going to bail you out." Why do they keep saying yes?
0: Because they have very few choices. No, if they you're, do. If you're if you're an individual, right, and you say, "I don't like the monopoly of uh, uh, the uh, Comcast and uh, right. two or three, what are you going to do about it?
1: Well, no, I'm going to. The, the The public is to sit there here. But to sit here and say everything is the private's fault and everything good that ever happened was because of the public and the government, not the private, that's extremely naive to say that because you're, you're then painting the picture of the public and all the responsibility that they have to reject these ideas by this. Uh, um, everybody's for sale. All the politicians are for it's sale. The,
0: it's the opposite. I'm the one who's saying the public can do a lot. That's what I've been saying all along. I'm writing about. You ask me who I respect, it's the people on the ground who are doing things because they have the options. So what, the do you think,
1: so what do you think about the guy that worked at IBM and he was making 30 bucks an hour and he works there and he's one of the public, he's one of the smaller guys and he leaves after making $82,000, he doesn't like the way IBM does something, goes and starts his own company, he becomes a billionaire. He went from being the public to being the top 1% of 1% of America, is he now a bad person?
0: I have no, I am not talking about the choices that individuals make. These are the footnotes. If you want to be totally naive about the situate system, take a look at the footnotes. If you want to pay attention to the things that matter, take a look at the major institutional factors. Okay, we have a high concentration of economic power, has enormous influence over the state. Uh, We have institutions based on a conception that classical liberals would have despised, namely, subordinating yourself to a master in most of your waking life. Uh, Those are the fundamental principles Mm -hmm. on which the economy is based. People have choices, they have options, and let's be concrete about it. So when Reagan came in, and Reagan and Thatcher, and launched the neoliberal revolution, which uh, transferred power even more than normally to the hands of unaccountable private power. The first thing they did was to smash unions, for very good reasons. Unions are one of the ways in which people can get together to defend themselves from the onslaught of private power. So, if, you're to move toward, if you want to move towards a world where power is in the hands, even more than usually of unaccountable private power, you want to eliminate this defense. And there's been a continued onslaught against the possibilities for workers to organize and defend themselves ever since then. It's a large yeah. part of it. And so, yes, these are the concrete things that happen in the world, okay? I don't care about what some guy in IBM decides to do with his life. That's for him to decide. Is that good? Rather,
1: is it good to have those? Is it good to highlight those stories where somebody who was a low wage, fifteen dollar an hour guy, thirty dollar an hour person went and changed his life and became wealthy, and his dreams became a reality and created twenty thousand jobs? Should we recognize that and turn them into heroes in America? Should Should we
0: recognize it? Say, Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs did a good job, or Bill Gates, of taking what had been created in the mostly in the public sector by lots of people whose names you wouldn't even know unless you haven't been working there for decades. They took all this and they turned it into something marketable, uh, which uh, uh, produced a lot of profit for themselves and some jobs on the side
1: some jobs on the side. You just say some jobs on the side, like maybe they created seven jobs. Apple employs a lot of people. Microsoft employs a lot of, Walmart employs two and a half million people. It's not some jobs. That's private. That's not necessarily the government. That's right.
0: Making use of what was produced by the general public. Okay. That's correct. There are within the state capital. So what do
1: we do? So if that's the case, what do we do? So I guess my question for you would be, And and the only reason I'm interrupting you, because you told you, we started off with technical difficulties. I thought we had more time, but you gave me a limited time. So I want to maximize the time that we have together. So, so if that's the case, so what is a system? So it seems like it's a sin for me to employ somebody in your eyes. Like if I employ anybody and pay them a salary, it's a sin. So what's my alternative? What should I do to be holy where I'm not taking advantage in your eyes, where I'm not taking advantage of somebody else? Because in your eyes, if the, private, if the private market hires and gives somebody a job, they're like a, they own the person. But if the government does it, they're being very virtuous.
0: Not the government. You're eliminating the fact that it's the people who are doing it through the mechanism of the government. It's the taxpayer who developed computers, the Internet, your iPhone.
1: So what oh. do we do, though? So walk me through it. So one of the criticisms. What, what, what do we
0: do? What do we do? Yeah, exactly what John Stuart Mill talked about, what Abraham Lincoln talked about, what all classical liberals talked about before it was destroyed. Handed over, the people who created it should manage and control it. The, uh, management and decisions and control should be in hands of the participants. You should change autocratic, tyrannical structures to democratic participatory ones, okay? Have that you, have you ever ran
1: piece. a company? Noam, have you ever ran a company?
0: Have I ever run a country? Company? Okay. No, Do you I've, know- also, I've also never created relativity theory. No, but, but, if never
1: ran a, but if you've never ran a company, what I mean by that is the following. So I'm, I bring people smarter than me, like yourself, to be challenged. I like being challenged, right? But on the company side, to say, have the people who created it run it.
0: The people it, it, who it, created it don't run it they turn over they turn it over to managers who run it they may make some contribution or they may just go somewhere and live off the accumulated capital but the fact is the, man, the and the question is of the people who manage it should they be appointed by a tyrannical authority which is unaccountable or should they be chosen by participation of the actual the people who actually take part in and Run the place. Should they be able to participate and control and decide how to manage and run it? That can be done extremely successfully. How one you, of the one, proven, very where has su- been,
1: where has that been su-
0: proven. Oh, some of the most successful enterprises in the world are run that way.
1: Name us. Okay. Give us five of them.
0: Mondragon, for example, the huge conglomerate. The huge conglomerate. You're using the,
1: the exception. Now. You're using the exception. It's not. It's not most. It's. It's less than 1% of 1% of companies.
0: Yeah, that's right. Most of it is government. Most of what happens is what I described. The taxpayer contr- pays for the develop for the risky, hard, creative work. Particular individuals are able to exploit what has been done at the public expense, uh, turn themselves into tyrants who run things, sometimes for the benefit of the population. Uh, that's called, that's the form of state capitalism that we have. And I think we should move towards a kind of system in which the classical liberal ideals are realized. And I, people are able to democratically participate in deciding how to manage and run their lives, including the institutions in which they work.
1: Professor, with all the respect, if you think
0: I, they ought to be tyrannies, fine, say so.
1: It's not, but that's what, that's what your interpretation is. You use words like, exploit you use words as tyrant tyrannic tyrannical leaders you use well, that's. Your, that's there's, but, there's, there's but, nothing but, but there's there's a lot of people to sit there and say you know we also had folks that create these are no many of these folks are noble human beings who took time away from their families at a time to create a job and create a business that led to creating jobs for other people 50 percent of jobs in america today are created by small business owners these people are not millionaires these are folks that maybe run a liquor store, maybe run a small market, maybe run a small shop, maybe do some real estate locally, and they hire five people that work for them. They make a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's half of America's employed by small business owners. Are yes. they tyrannical entrepreneurs no, and business?
0: So you you continue to take the extremely naive. I point think of your view. Take, you I use think your, your word of talking about the individuals. I haven't said a word in criticism about Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or any, somebody running a small store. Yeah, you said invites. they use
1: what the public created. You yes, said they the use
0: public, what the public created. They, the and then, public, then they were able to create some jobs. Is it impossible for you to break out of this looking at footnotes naively at the individuals and refusing to look at the institutions in which they function? You take a look at the institutions which so take a, take a business, take a, uh, Microsoft. Microsoft is pure a pure example of absolute tyranny. The decisions are made at the top, they're handed down to the next level, go down to the bottom, at the very bottom, you have the right to rent yourself to them. That's what was abhorred, not only by classical liberals, but by thousands of years of tradition. We've internalized it, and I don't think we should. I think these institutions should be run democratically by the people who participate in them, making use of the contributions that the general society, the general public, has made over the years to create the technology that is now being appropriated to use in these ways. That's the issue. That's nothing to do with individuals. Maybe the guy who runs it is the nicest guy in the world. Fine, I'm talking about what the institution does. So let's take uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, the world's biggest bank. Maybe the guy who writes it, who runs it, is the absolute nicest guy in the world. He is institutionally constrained to spend the money of J.P. Morgan Chase to destroy the prospects for human life on Earth. That's if he doesn't do it, he'll be replaced. By somebody else who will do it. That's the nature of the state capitalist system, and if we're serious about the world, that's what we ought to be looking at, not whether this or that guy is a nice person.
1: Noam, last question for you before we wrap up. One of the this is uh, for us to wrap up the interview. A lot of people uh, uh, have asked. I asked a question on Twitter and Facebook about Noam, and you have thousands of fans who showed up. And oh my gosh, you know, we, you know the. He's challenged a way of thinking on this, challenged a way of thinking, thinking of this. But there were a few that would like to see a debate between you and Thomas Sowell. Would you, would you be open to a debate between you and Thomas Sowell?
0: If there's any point to it. I've read some of his work. It doesn't look very interesting to me. But uh, if I could find time, and if he could find time, we could set it up.
1: What if, what if I coordinated, and I, if you do it, I'll buy a thousand copies of whatever book you want me to buy? And we'll give it away to the viewers. I think the viewers want
0: to see the two of you guys have a discourse.
1: I think I think the audience and the people who you care about the most would win at the end of the day.
0: If you think so, I could put it on the schedule. But you know what the schedule looks like.
1: Wonderful. You know? If you're open to it, I think that'd be great because I think this will be a way to even make your make a stronger argument on what your beliefs are. The audience will win. Your folks who believe in your philosophies will win. If you address it with him, not with me, but somebody like Thomas Soul, who is a you know, a thinker like you as well, it'd be wonderful to see the clash of the two
0: ideas. Well, I've done that a number of times and I uh, don't find it very useful, but I could, I'm sure he feels the same way. We could try to put it in our schedule. If you're open to it,
1: I could get with his team and coordinate it. This will be wonderful that you made the commitment.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll be able to make that happen. Good, but don't remember, it won't be till September at least, you know, my schedule. You know I, will schedule. Have,
1: I will have, I will have, I know he's also extremely busy but I will have the team get together and we'll do our best to figure out a time that works for
0: everybody. You know how long it took to schedule this? I don't know. You don't? Well, your manager does. It's okay. Very, I... Yeah, you can ask him. Probably took years because these are very hard to fit things in. So lots of things to do. I don't happen to find out if much interest but i think
1: concerned. the world would love the two of you Not on the, the big world stage together. a tiny
0: fraction of the world i
1: think the world ended. would love we would learn we would get smarter if you guys would do it the world the people would win but again professor thank you so much for your time appreciate you wish you nothing but the very best thank you so number one if you do want to see the debate between mr thomas Sowell and professor noam chomsky go on twitter my handle patrick david you got their handles here as well share it on Twitter, get it out there, and see if people want to see that debate take place. I think the world would benefit. We're talking about 90 plus years of life experience to discuss their own set of philosophies on the economy, America, whatever else may be. I'm sure you want to see it as bad as I want to see it. But what was your biggest takeaway? From sitting down you know, listening to my debate within my conversation with a man who worked at MIT and taught for 60 plus years and has written 150 plus books. And whether you agree with him or not, there's a lot of things that he makes you think and I'm so glad I did this interview. I was just thinking about right now, what are the videos to send you to that's opposing idea of economically. I don't know why I only tend to interview socialists or folks on the left on the economist side, but uh, I did an interview with Laugh for a couple years ago, but that's five years ago. So I would only drive you to two interviews. If you enjoyed the interview today, I think you're gonna enjoy my sit down with uh, Professor Richard Wolff. Forbes, call, Forbes calls him the number one socialist voice in America. If you've not seen this video, it's phenomenal. The other one is with a communist, Slavo Zizek. If you've not seen this, he will definitely entertain you. Both of them are great. Uh again, if you if you're crazy like me and you enjoy topics like this, go check those two interviews out. Take care everybody. Bye-bye.